Okay, welcome to the Liberal Conservative Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Wayne. Today we're going to talk about uh, the United States military role as the world police. Prior to World War I, uh, the role of world police really belonged to the United Kingdom. They had the strongest navy in the world, and maybe to a lesser extent, you could probably argue France. Um, but since 1945, which was the end of World War II, that title has really belonged to the United States. So what is the title of world police? You know, at the very basic form, it is a superpower projecting its influences on world affairs. And as you know, I'm a, I'm a veteran of the United States Navy. Uh, my military experience is as antiquated as the Russian Navy. So I have recruited our first guest to the Liberal Conservative Podcast. He has recent um, military experience, including multiple deployments to the Mediterranean, the Middle East, the West, Western Pacific, uh, the North Pole. So our guest is Colt D. That's D-E-E. So while he will not discuss classified information, I chose to keep his full name undisclosed. Uh, not only does, does Colt have recent military experience, so I've known this man for 30 years. I trust his judgment. He's one of the smartest people I know. So I've recruited him to come and talk to us. So as I said, we'll discuss the how the U.S. became the world police, but uh, we'll also get into some current events uh, current debates on spending in, in conflicts uh, such as the war in Ukraine. Okay, Colt, welcome to the Liberal Conservative Podcast. Hey, yeah, good. I'm glad to be here. Okay, hey, before we get started, I want to ask you one question. This has to do with, let's just say, for instance, you're President Joe Biden, and your <laughs> okay. def- and your defense secretary, for example disappears for four days and you come on the news and say you had no idea where he was. Do you believe that? Uh, no, I, <laughs> I, I don't believe that for a second. Um, I think he, I, I don't claim to know why he was trying to cover that up or keep it a hush hush, maybe for his own defense secretary's I don't know, personal reasons, uh, dealing with medical issues. Um, but I think that is, far-fetched to say the least that he had no clue where his defense secretary was i absolutely agree i just find it outrageous that they would even try to pull that i mean i mean just own it say he went in for a procedure we didn't think it was going to be a big deal and it turned out and it went bad so i i just don't get that you're one of your main command and control people has disappeared for four days and you're going to try to tell the the people that you don't know where he was so Ridiculous. Yeah, worse optics to say that you don't know where he is. Yeah, exactly. So, hey, so 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 let's jump into uh, let's talk about how the U.S. came to be the world's the superpower we are today. I feel like it's fairly fairly common knowledge that the U.S. spends several uh, times more than most countries on their defense budget. So, Colt, uh, give us some insight. Your your military. What do you think? Yeah. So. Uh, there's quite a few times in history when you could really say that the U.S. either tried to or started to become the world superpower. Um, like after World War One, that was kind of a big turning point or pivotal point. Um, the one I'm really going to talk about is after uh, World War Two. So kind of got to go back, give a history lesson. So um, right before the end of World War Two, uh, FDR called all the world leaders, I'm sorry, all, not all the world leaders, the allied leaders, um, for a meeting because they could all see the end of the war coming. Everybody could basically see how the world was turning. So um, he said, you know, we're all going to meet here. And given that the war effort was effectively the United States, we were the one charging the war, um, leading, yeah, the war effort. So 
all these world powers effectively knew or they thought they knew what was going to happen in the United States was going to request monetary reparations, mineral rights, land, etc. Because that's what was previous. Like that was the, the normalcy prior to World War II. So if you conquered a nation or you won a war, then you got just what I said, monetary reparations, land rights, etc. Um, but that wasn't the case. FDR really turned everybody on their heads when the, he said, like, no, we're going to advocate for a global economic system. We're going to basically make everything stable. So um, what he was going for was basically, like I said, kind of stability, but where everybody could have access to free trade, even if it didn't serve the United States' interest. So that was kind of where that pivotal, pivotal, excuse me, turning moment was in history because that was never a practice. Free, free trade was never a thing. Um, so, and you got to think about that even before that, everybody's free trade or everybody's trade interests, let me say that, uh, were protected by that, that nation's Navy. Um, and most countries didn't have much of a Navy, especially after World War II. That was basically the U.S. Japan's Navy was destroyed. England's Navy was mostly destroyed. Of course, Germany was destroyed. So you get my point. Effectively, nobody had a Navy besides the United States. So we said, hey, we're going to step up and we're going to protect shipping lanes for everybody. Again, even if it doesn't protect the United States interests. So all that was in an effort to stabilize global trade after World War II um, when effectively the, the world would have gone into this big depression phase um, because of the war, because of the war effort being stopped. So all that being said, what do you think about that for basically the U.S. offering to pony up our resources and time and money to protect everybody's trade? So I, I agree with you, Colt, for most most everything you said I agree with. So to me, right after World War II, I think we I, – let me, let me stop. I think we had a little bit of a vested interest in protecting everyone's shipping lanes because right after oh, yeah, World no War – Right after World War II, the United States produced one half of all goods produced in the world. So we had a very vested interest in getting our goods to other countries. You know, at that time, you, like you said, most countries in Europe and Asia were devastated by the war and or they were in a depression or both. So I agree that the U.S. obviously was the only country that was able to stabilize the world economically. Uh, you know, in the current world, I think we cannot economically do it alone. We we have to have strong allies and, and, and a strong economy. You know, the world is moving to a global economy, just like, you know, FDR really kind of predicted that. And uh, I think we, we have to have a good mix of isolationism as well as global trade. Uh, you, you know, we can't rely on our enemies to pro provide us with essential goods, you know, such as energy or, or things like computer chips. And I think COVID was a huge wake-up call to Americans that showed our dependency on China. You know, I want to back up just a bit. Let's go back to World War II. You know, Roosevelt died in April of 1945. The world ended in September. The war ended in September of 1945. And in 1947, the Truman administration comes up with the Truman Doctrine. You know, and that basically promised assistance to non-communist allies. The Truman Doctrine was a policy aimed at stopping the spread of communism. However, you know, the fight against communism really ended in 1990 with the fall of the Soviet Union. You could probably argue China is still communist, but they're more of a mix between a socialist democracy and you could probably argue even a dictatorship. So 
I'm sure that I'm going to get lots of messages on Facebook correcting my China opinion. But anyway, so since the end of the Cold War, the United States has really become the world police in a war on terrorism rather than a war on communism. Do you agree or disagree? I can definitely agree with that. Um, I think our playbook um, was written to not just include communism, but other things as well. And I think we have, as far as military spending and how we've written our playbook, I think we have definitely kind of wandered or rewritten. Um, so our horizons, especially during post-World uh, War II, included a ton of proxy wars um, in a, the aim of weakening communism, or weak, weakening the uh, Soviet Union specifically. But there, I mean, just a couple to name right off the cuff, there was a Soviet-Afghan war. The Nigerian Civil War, there's a Suez Canal crisis, the Vietnam conflict, and the list just goes on and on and on. Um, so really one of the main points of all of that was doing so for our economic and diplomatic interests. At any given time, there's 15% of the trade flowing through the Suez Canal, so that should be obvious why we had an interest there. Nigeria, we had a ton of mineral interests, so did the Soviet Union, um, specifically uranium, so that shouldn't be a surprise why we wanted that. So the practice really... That practice really set the tone for how we handle these proxy wars and weakening our adversary nations, i.e. giving them military funding and aid. So I can definitely agree with you that we have kind of become a global war on terror police, specifically yeah. now, as opposed to just fighting the war on communism. Yeah, I agree with that. And I'm glad you brought something up about the the, the world economy and, and the Soviet Union. So many of the Republican politicians are against the U.S. providing war uh, funding and aid to the war in, in the Ukraine, you know, and that directly, obviously, directly re relates back to Russia. So I believe, I believe, we need to help fund the war in the Ukraine. You know, the Republican Party of isolationism, uh, the public Republican Party policy of isolationism, is not really a sustainable policy in the global economy. I think, like I said before, you need a good mix. Um, however, that goes back to what I said about COVID. You know, revealing our dependency on China. Partial, partial isolationism is highly sensitive for highly sensitive items such as the power grids, uh, defense, water supplies is is the way to go. You know, we we need to that needs to be sole sourced through the United States. We need to provide our own. You know, even our even if our government gets into the business of computer chip development, which I'm assuming our military is, almost all of our technological in, innovations that we use today were from military research. Um, so what do you think about isolationism and our dependency? So totally agree that we definitely need some sort of isolationism. And I'm actually glad you brought up the computer chip thing. Um, the government is subsidizing, I think, in, at least in some sense, uh, a computer chip manufacturing plant um, by it, or for Intel to make a computer chip plant. Um, so that is actually happening right now because I think the U.S. is realizing we cannot long-term uh, rely on Taiwan <laughs> um, without getting too political. <laughs> yeah. But but since I was a kid, um, I definitely remember hearing my grandparents and relatives living in a southern home say that uh, we should always stay out of everybody's business and keep to ourselves and not provide funding to this country and that country, et cetera. And I think that's the Republican Party, in my opinion, tends to be very nearsighted and they don't think past the immediate um, when it comes to global events. 
Um, I think the counterpoint to that argument that every that the U.S. should lead a more isolationist government is that they need to realize that we live in a very real world where, there, where we have adversaries. So I think that's the issue that the Republican Party has is they are just refusing to recognize that we do have Iran, we have North Korea, we have Russia, and many of them would happily cut off trade to the Suez Canal maybe if it meant weakening the United States. Look at the Houthi rebels right now. Like I said before, approximately 15% of the world's trade flows through the Suez at any given time. And the shipping company Maersk is already reporting the goods uh, cost to ship around Africa has more than doubled their prices, which is just going to get passed on to the consumers or any given country. So recognizing that we have adversaries is makes it difficult for me to say that we should be isolationist. I mean, our current defense budget is in the realm of $860 billion for fiscal year 23, according to the National Defense Authorization Act. So I'm for keeping that personally. Um, I definitely think that that money is going to good use, specifically helping with the war in Ukraine, since we're bringing that up. So I I agree with almost everything you said there. I I do not believe it's just the Republican Party who thinks in the immediate or or doesn't um, think about long term, because I think it's because of the way our government is set up. um, The whole government is short sighted. You know, the reason it's a government instead of just the Republicans is every politician is worried about one thing. You know, um, they're worried about getting elected again. Uh, so the government as a whole is very short-sighted. They they want to please the public now. And, and, you know, to me, if they would just be very honest with the public and say, we have to do this now or in the future, we, we will not be a viable country or a viable power or what, you know, I, I think they have to, they have to quit being so short-sighted, maybe be more honest with the government. And uh, talk to me more about, you You talked about the defense budget. Tell me more what, what you're going into there. Yeah, so you talked about how much we were funding Ukraine and how, uh, from what I've seen in the recent Republican uh, nominee debates, I, I am amazed that funding the war in Ukraine is actually a hot-button topic right now. So like I said, we spent about $860 billion on defense annually. So the last numbers I could find were since September of 2023, the U.S. had sent $113 billion in equipment and funding to Ukraine. So that's over two years. So this war started in February of 2022. Up until September 23, uh, we had sent $113 billion. So I'm sure that number's gone up, but that's the last number I could find. Uh, besides the most recent aid package that was like in December, I think was like $250 million. So that's like pretty small potatoes comparatively. But that's 13% of our budget over two years. So half that per year, and that's less than 10% of our defense budget per year to destroy an adversary's military at no cost of U.S. life. I, I'm amazed that that's even a, a debate that we are sacrificing no military personnel, no lives, and just our equipment is getting sent over there and to destroy an adversary nation, their military. So that's my counterpoint to that argument is that we shouldn't be involved in conflicts overseas, is that we have a large enough military force and budget that we can help control the end outcome so that it betters the United States' interests long-term and weakens our adversaries. So I would agree that our vision long-term has wavered to some extent. Um, fighting the war on terror, an ideological war, was doomed to fail. Um, there's tons of books about there, all the failings that we had in Afghanistan and all that. But um, I think in regards to the debate, 
to the debates that you brought up. Um, I'm for funding the war in Ukraine. I think most Americans would like to see a step back from our extreme position of being the world police, which I agree for the most part has gotten a little excessive. But as of right now, I'm for uh, us helping continually fight the war in Ukraine. Do you know what? You said something there that, that kind of dawned on me. You, you talked about us sending our equipment over and, and helping destroy an adversary's military. You know, we're also obtaining a treasure trove of intelligence on the capabilities of the Russian military at no, like you said, at no cost to us and a treasure trove of intelligence on the Russian military on their, their defenses, how they can, our weaknesses, I guess would be a better term. The weaknesses of our equipment, if there are any, you know, this will, this will, this is just a treasure trove of intelligence gathering. Not only that, but we're learning what the capabilities of our Iranian missiles and Iranian drones and South Korean missiles are. You know, we're seeing these for the first time really in combat. So now this is just a treasure trove of, and I've said that three times now, just can't, can't, can't emphasize it enough. We are gathering so much intelligence on the capabilities of our adversaries right now, and it's unfortunate that people are dying to do that. But that's a way of life. That's just the way we are, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even I feel like me being in the military, even five to ten years ago, everybody was still saying like, "Oh, I'm scared to go to a war with Russia." I think they showed their hand too too early. I think they showed us their cards. I mean, and it's I'm just going to say it outright: their military sucks. They are terrible. They are definitely not a tier one military. Like you, to me, they're nowhere close to us. Um, I don't think China's very close to us, but but we're talking specifically Russia. They, they're just not a tier one military anymore. They can't do it. They're buying stuff from Iran and North Korea. I mean, you, yeah, you know that buying, shows uh, missiles and equipment and mines, and most of their troops are going to uh, Ukraine with no body armor. It, it's a it's a farce. Yeah, it's crazy how ill-equipped they are. So, hey, so we're about out of time. So this this has went really quick. Uh, Colt, can you come back next week? We're, next week we're going to discuss Trump and his his um, his challenges on the on states want him to be off the ballot. We'll also talk a lot about the the upcoming election. A lot of people are dropping out, so so we don't really have to go over a ton of candidates. Would you be interested in coming back? Yeah, absolutely. I'll happily come back and share my thoughts. Hopefully we can get some more people on here, get somebody learning some more things. Cool, cool. All right. Thanks, Colt. Uh, hey, this concludes the, the this episode of the Liberal Conservative Podcast. I, I really appreciate you guys listening. You know, this is a milestone episode for us. It's our first guest on the LCP. And and once again, I want to thank you guys to, to all of our listeners. Uh, we're up to about 190 subscribers and, uh, you know, that's not a lot in a country of 350 million ish, but I'm excited about our continued growth. So please recommend us to your friends. If you, if you, if you love us, if you don't, uh, still recommend us to your friends, maybe they'll like it. So have a great week. Thanks for joining us, Colt. I appreciate you. And I will talk to you in a couple of weeks. Does that sound good? Yeah, I'll see you then. Okay. Thank you guys. Have a good one.